We're going to start off this morning by reading the short text itself. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis 19, starting in verse 30. Genesis 19, starting in verse 30. If you don't have a Bible, we actually have some out in the gathering center on a little table. You can feel free to use one and take one. Genesis 19, starting in verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve our offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she rose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. What could we possibly learn from this narrative? I was explaining the narrative to one of my children this past week just to, you know, help them prep for the sermon and, uh, I started to express that they were then in a cave and the daughters knew they couldn't have children and my child stops me and goes, whoa, wait, are they gonna, and I said, "Uh uh-huh, and you should have seen the look of disdain, disgust, utter horror at what was going to take place, right? That was the response. Yep, that's an appropriate response, right? But I don't think that that is the only response God wants us to have from this text. Actually, I know that's not the only response. It's not simply for us to say, yuck, I'm so glad I'm not like Lot and his daughters. So I want to tell you what the main idea of the sermon is today to help you as we move forward. So we'll start off with this. The main idea is that whoever would save his life will lose it. Okay, now, you might be familiar with those words. Those are words that Jesus actually said to his disciples. But why use these words here? Well, if you remember, and you were here last week, we went through the destruction of Sodom and the rescue of Lot. And we learned some things about Lot. Lot was clinging to the creaturely comforts in Sodom. He didn't like the sexual sin of Sodom, and he spoke against it, but he liked the comforts of living in Sodom. The worldly delights were anchoring him in Sodom. So much so that when the angels are saying, get out of here, we're going to destroy it, we're told he lingered in the town because he really liked what he had built his life around. And that's when I said last week, I think that we are more like Lot than we care to admit. We cling to things here. Even if it's not physically, we 
emotionally, mentally cling to things of this world. So much so that they anchor ourselves here and not in the Lord. How do you know if you've been anchoring yourself in the things of this world and not in Christ? I think we have some some examples. Uh, maybe, maybe some of you, many of you remember the uh, financial burdens that were taking place in 2008 and house values were dropping and people in the Holland area were losing jobs, being laid off. A lot of construction workers were, you know, we're done. We can't do anything. But worldwide, there was actually strings of deaths by suicide from, from extremely wealthy people. Like, uh, let's see here, the, the chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, the chief executive of Sheldon Good, which is a leading real estate auction firm, a French money manager who invested money for royalty and influential families in Europe, and the list goes on. All these people died by suicide. Why? I think because what they were living for looked like it was dying. And therefore, if you live for something and whatever you live for dies, you have to go with it. I know that sounds very simplistic, and it is, it is simplistic. But I also want to press this a little bit because I say that and you go, okay, so that's how we know if we're anchoring ourselves. I, I would be willing to take my life. Okay, that's, that's not all that I'm saying. Some of you might look at people who have taken their lives or they've died by suicide and you would say, um, I'll never understand that. And in some ways I'll say, I'm grateful that you wouldn't. But I also want to press it a little bit. Have you ever felt depressed? Have you ever felt hopeless? Have you ever felt despair? Have you ever had circumstances in your life that have come into your life that you say, well, if that's going to happen, then what's the point of what I'm doing? Anybody ever felt like that before? I do this, I do all the right things, and I not only don't get any reward for it, but I get things taken away. I would imagine that most, if not every human being, has faced this or will face this at least one point in their life. Our nation, I think, lives in this. There was a French philosopher, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, and he came to the United States in the 1800s to evaluate this interesting country. And when he evaluated America, he said that there was a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. Stop. This is mid-early 1800s. They have so much, but there's this strange melancholy. And as, as he goes on to write, he commentates you know, his perspective on this and says the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. You know, in the United States of America, I think he was even, I think, I think he was even commenting on this pursuit of happiness piece. 
And he was saying, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. Because this is, this is what we do as human beings. We have a void of joy. And so what do we do? We try to find something to fill it, something to answer that. A void of satisfaction, a void of something. And de Tocqueville is saying, nothing in this world is going to satisfy this human heart. Do you agree with that? I think you should. I'm going to press this even a little bit further. Because we go back to my, what I was talking about, the financial crisis, the people who died by suicides. They're living for these things that are dying. And then I want to quote to you this verse in Ezekiel. When God is speaking against Israel and the leaders in Israel, he says, these men have set up idols in their heart and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Why in the world am I bringing up idols right now? Because we, we tend to think of idols maybe as these things that we carve and bow down and worship to, but actually those statues that we might bow down and worship to are just physical manifestations of what's taking place in here. I don't have to carve out money to say I worship it, right? It's there, inside. And what Tocqueville, I think, was seeing was this strange melancholy. Because why? We're just clinging to this world. And this world is dying, right? We get that? So my question for you, even as we, before we jump in further into Genesis 19 with Lot and his daughters, my question for you is, what idols are in your heart? I want you to ask this, and you're like, how are you going to get there? Just wait, just wait. What idols are in your heart? What might you be living for? And you might say, I don't got any idols. I want to quote to you from the theologian, Pastor John Calvin, who said, the evil in our desires typically does not lie in what we want, but that in that we want it too much. I thought idols were only bad things. <laughs> Anything is bad if you want it too much. If you want it at the level of your pursuit of God, it is sin. That's idolatry. And so you have to ask yourself, do I supremely love God or the things of this world? Why do you think I'm asking these questions based on Lot's life? Do you see, I just want to see heads not. Do you, do you see the connection I'm trying to make with Lot and this? Lot was anchoring himself just like what the prophets accused Sodom of earlier of they had so much abundance, they had all this stuff. And Lot's, Lot's anchoring himself in Sodom. So much so he doesn't want to leave. Oh! Lot, do you supremely love God or do you love these creaturely delights? What, what idols are in your heart? 
There was one pastor, theologian, who has since passed away, who once wrote about the idols of the heart, and he said that our heart idols drive us to break rules we once honored, to harm others and even ourselves in order to get it. Our heart idols break rules we once honored. And again, some of you might say, oh, well then, phew, I'm good. I never break the rules. Really? Really? Let me just, love is patient. What about, what about in parenting your children? You might get mad, angry at your children because they're not obeying you and they're not respecting you. Ah! Anybody else felt that way before? No, seriously, I just want to see, like, just, you know, okay. Some of you look to your children for your meaning. If I'm a good mom or if I'm a good dad, then that means I'm a good person. And if my children do this or that, then <gasps> my life is gone. And you will break God's rules to get what you want. Money. Relationships. Oh, that person hurt me. And so I'm going to, what? Be embittered, be angry. And you're going to break God's rules that says, don't, don't uh, quench the spirit by whom you were sealed, but rather forgive. What idols are in your life, in your heart? Now I think we can go in to Lot. And we can see by Lot's negative example, I pray that his negative example would spur us on to deny idolatry and to lose our lives for Christ's sake. So what we're going to look at first is how Lot sought to save his life. God took Sodom out, or God took Lot out of Sodom. <laughs> Sodom still seems to be in Lot's heart. Now clearly Lot isn't physically dead, but he's lost what he's lived for, right? And he's made creaturely comforts his ultimate desire and pursuit that's the idolatry of the heart. I think we see that expressed here in this text. How? How do we see that Lot is trying to save his life in his own strength? One, he's living on the basis of fear. Look at verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. I actually love how one commentator translates this to give a little bit more context. He writes this, Because Lot was afraid to, can you just say this, these next five words with me? He was afraid to put down his roots, or put down roots in Zoar. Sorry. Put down roots. It's not just talking about, I'm afraid to live here. It's like, if I live here, I can't live here. He's full of fear. Lot is living in the basis of fear. And let me just say this. If fear is your continual companion in life, there's a deep idol in you. 
I'm going to say it again. If fear is a continual companion in you, there is a deep idol. Well, no, Pastor Timothy, there's this problem, there's this problem, there's this problem, this problem, this problem, this problem, this problem, this problem, everywhere. It's problems. I have a reason for all of my fears. Sure. Who's your God? Who's your God? Is he over all of it? Is he? Or is he just a part of all the problems? Who's your God? Remember what we read earlier in the service. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. I I will read these next five words with you, I promise. Read this with me. It tends only to evil. You think God's telling the truth there? I'm going to ask you again. You think God's telling you the truth there? Yes. Yes. God speaks only truth. So what is Lot afraid of? What, what is he afraid of? Why, why is he afraid to put down his roots in Zoar? Uh, this same commentator with this earlier translation, he asks these questions. Is, is Lot too close for comfort to the tragic scene? Does the, um, oops, does the cave Does the cave promise more security than the open spaces of Zoar? Having been delivered by the mercies of God, must he now fend for himself? Are these the fears that Lot's dealing with? The text doesn't tell us the specific fear. I would actually say all of the above, probably. Because the text isn't specific. The text is just saying fear. There's just fear. And so he's afraid to put down his roots you know what? I think, I think this often happens in, in our lives. When you lose something in your life that you've been living for, fear takes root. And you often feel like you have to scramble to gain a sense of meaning again. Have you ever, have anybody ever felt that before? Like, oh no, I gotta do this, I gotta do this. <laughs> And no, I can't do that because if I do that, then this is going to happen. And if I do this, then is this going to happen? And then, and you go crazy trying to figure things out. Lot's finally gotten to a point at some point in time with Zoar. I can't, I can't dig my roots here. It's only going to be a problem, and it's full of problems. Listen, if 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 you do that. You know you're living for something other, other than the Lord. Something else has taken root. And I can imagine with Lot that he's thinking, I can't live in Zoar because, you know, God might destroy this one. And you know what? I was just trying to be nice in Sodom. I was just trying. It it tells us he was a judge. The New Testament tells us that he spoke, or we're even told in the text, he spoke against the wickedness of the city of the sexual sin. I tried, I tried, but then God just took it all away. Anybody ever said something like that to God? I did all these things, and then God, you destroyed it. Not only did God take away the creaturely comforts, God God took away his wife. He's lost everything. What's the point of living? 
if I do all this? And so we find Lot lives in a cave. Now you might say, well, didn't the angel tell him to flee to the mountains anyway? So like he's going to the mountains now. But it doesn't tell us he's going to the mountains because he wants to obey the Lord. That's not what it says, right? It says he goes to the mountains because he's fearful. In addition, I don't think that God's intention was to say, I want you to set your roots in the mountain, in the cave. What the angel said is, go flee to the mountains so you can flee the destruction, right? So he can be safe in the mountains. Well, what Lot's doing, he's like, I'm just going to live here. I'm just going to live in these mountains. Now, what's really interesting is that in this, in this text and even the previous chapter, there's a lot of verbs that communicate speed, movement, Abraham moving around, doing all this stuff hurriedly. And, and then you have Lot, while he's like lazy, the angels are speedy and like, come on, let's go. And once you get into this text, it's, I'm just going to live here. That's, that's the verbs in the Hebrew here. In the ancient world, caves were used to live in for protection. And so what I think we see from Lot is God has taken everything away from him, and now he's going to self-protect. I'm in self-protection mode. Not only is he in self-protection mode, but he has his daughters with him, and he's controlling their fates as well. Again, this is, this is what we do when our idol dies and then we have to try to figure out how to gain control again, or we think we do. Self-protection, and we're going to hurt others. So he goes to the cave, I think, for protection and also, like, it's pointless. Like, I have a question. Why didn't Lot go to Abraham? Did any else of you, like, ask that question? Like, Abraham was the one who prayed for him. He knows Abraham exists. Abraham rescued him in a previous occasion. Why didn't he go to Abraham? No, no, he's going to sulk. He's going to guarantee that nothing is ever going to be taken from him again. He's also going to guarantee that nothing is going to be taken from his daughters as well. So he protects his daughters in the cave, but his daughters are never going to know marriage. They're never going to have children. And they're going to lose nothing because he's ensuring they have nothing. I have seen this mentality so many times in coming alongside people in counseling. Where they have so many issues in their lives. And I'll give them counsel and they'll say, nope, that's not going to work. Nope, that's not going to work. Nope, that's not going to work. Okay. What I want to say is, who has the problems? You know why I want to say that? Because clearly you are not seeing. And what, what often seems to be the response of people is the reason why they say that's not going to work, this isn't going to work, that's not going to work, is because they can't have control. Were we ever designed to be in control? You say, yeah, no. There is literally not one command in the Bible that says, be in control. Did you know that? Self-controlled, but even the self-control is a gift of the Holy Spirit to empower us to be able to do that. Like, and yet many people, how do I gain control? Can you look at yourself for a moment? 
What hurt are you trying to protect yourself from? What people do you think you might be trying to manipulate or control in, in order to maintain your sense that everything's good? Lot ought to have seen the destruction of Sodom and said, Lord, thank you. I was so rebellious, but you got me out. But instead, Lot focuses on the loss, not on the rescue. Now, I want to think about the original readers of this. Who are the original readers? Israelites wandering in the wilderness. I think that they should see themselves in Lot's response. They were the ones that would complain in the, in the wilderness and even go to the point this one time where it's like hilariously stupid that they say, man, it would have been better if we were back in Egypt. At least we had good food. Weren't you slaves? Yeah, minor details, right? At least we had good food. But I think we can relate to the Israelites too. I think we could relate to Lot in this. There's a song that was written years and years ago by an artist named Sarah Groves. And the title of the song is Painting Pictures of Egypt. And in that song, she says, the place I was wasn't perfect. But I had found a way to live. It wasn't milk or honey, but then neither is this. I've been painting pictures of Egypt leaving out what it lacked. The future feels so hard, and I want to go back. Can you resonate with that at all? You find yourself in that position? Maybe you're a parent, and you're wondering, what's the purpose of parenting when your children won't obey and everything's difficult? Maybe you're recognizing you're just longing for validation and living for this sense of validity. Maybe for you, again, you can relate to earlier illustrations with money. You don't have it, you lost it, but your life is bound up in things. Maybe your life is bound up in being smart or being respected, feeling those things, and you've lost those things. Oh, the future feels so hard. I want to go back. But you're leaving out what it lacked, what the past lacked. Now, some of you maybe could say, no way, that's, that's totally not me. But let me just ask you this. In evaluating your own idols and your own heart, when things go wrong, how do you respond? Very basic question. When things go wrong, how do you, I'll say it this way, react? Anger? Self-pity? Despair? All those things are signs that you might be living for something else than God. And that's the sin of Lot. That's idolatry. And if we're not careful, we'll embrace Lot's complete hopelessness. Why do I say he's completely hopeless? Well, when his daughters connive the plan to get pregnant... They know they can get their dad drunk. And, and we're not just talking like buzzed, right? He is maybe beyond what we would say plastered. Like he is way beyond 
drunk. So much so that twice in the Hebrew text, he didn't even know when they came in or when they left. I, I don't even know how drunk you'd have to be to be that drunk two nights in a row. I think hopeless people live that way. If he had hope in the Lord and trust in him, I don't think he would be getting that drunk. He's hopeless. Now, I do want to say one thing about the daughters. I'm no way, no way am I condoning their actions. I do, though, think it might be helpful to know some cultural perspective. One, if their dad died, which we're told in the text, he's advanced in years. If their dad died, they have no, no uh, protection societally. And their dad has taken them into a cave and said, I'm the only one who can take care of you. And they're like, you're going to die. Who's going to take care of us? In the ancient world, it would then be their sons that would take care of them. I'm not justifying the behavior, just sharing what's going on here. But I also want you to see something else. Lot's parenting in Sodom was not helpful for his daughters and their growth. Because, now the ESV makes it kind of sound a little bit better, but in the Hebrew, the, the phrase, come into us, you look at the text, come into us. That Hebrew phrase only is ever used in the Old Testament to refer to incest. And they say incest is practiced all around the world. Let's do it. Sodom is all they knew. It's like the whole world does it. What's the problem? We'll get our dad drunk. We know he would be against that, you know, against that sexual sin. But we can get him drunk. And then we can engage in this behavior. And this is a cruel irony because earlier in this chapter, Lot is willing to sacrifice his daughters to the crowd and they're willing to sacrifice their dad for themselves. Lot, in seeking to save his life, really seeking to save his control, actually loses his life. You know, not only does he lose his life, he loses his daughter's lives, which should cause us to be reminded idolatry always affects other people. And when we think we have it under control, then the idolatry is winning. It takes us further than we want to go. It makes us fools. It leads us to self-destruction. Listen, don't take your idolatry lightly. If you're even sitting here this morning going, hmm, I wonder if that's an idol. Don't quickly say, ah, but it's not. Think about it. Don't ignore it. Pray and seek the Spirit's wisdom and grace. Because in looking at Lot, we see how his desire for self-protection, self-pity, and control implodes. The same will be true of us if God were to give us over to our own way. And we see this in Lot. He's given over to drunkenness. And then he becomes not only the grandfather, but the father of these two nations. Through incest with his daughter. Now, clearly Moses is writing here for the Israelites to understand where these nations come from. Why? Well, it's similar to like when the Bible tells us about Adam and Eve and says we all come from Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve sinned and therefore our sinfulness comes from Adam and Eve. 
Gotcha? So what Moses is emphasizing here is he's saying the Moabites and the Ammonites came from this. And their sins of today goes all the way back to the beginning. Just by way of reminder, if you don't know the sin of the Moabites and Ammonites, God says to the Israelites, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Some of you probably remember the story of Balaam. They hired Balaam to curse. And do you know what happened when Balaam couldn't curse them? Do you know what they then did? They got Moabite women to seduce them, to seduce the Israelites, to get them to come to their gods and to be won over. The continued seduction of Moab and Ammon. Israel. Don't trust those who try to maintain control in their own selves. Don't trust the people who turn to their own self-protection. This is what their father Lot did. And it only leads to further destruction and death. And Ventura, for us, don't fall prey to the same things. Even if you think your ways are not as bad, it's all sin against the Lord. And the Lord cares about your heart. He cares about the idols of the heart. Where's your heart with him? And this is the question that I have about Lot as we conclude this narrative. This is actually the last mentioning of Lot in all the Old Testament. This is Lot's legacy. Final words. We have Lot here with his legacy. He's lost everything because God has taken it from him. And then we're going to go into the next text with Abraham, who, yes, not perfect, clearly not perfect, but continue to be drawn back to the Lord. And what do we see in Abraham's life? I mean, he, Abraham lost everything for the sake of God and is gaining Lot gained, and he's lost. But I'll ask this question again that I asked before. Why didn't Lot trust his mediator? And the same can be said of us. The same can be said of you. Why don't you trust your mediator? And by mediator, I'm talking about Jesus, of course. Jesus, Jesus who prays for us and lives to intercede for us. Why didn't Lot see the destruction of Sodom as an answer to prayer? No, he didn't know, I don't think, that Abraham was praying for him. But why didn't he see this as, God got me out of my bondage? Why? But the same question can be asked of you and me. Why, when certain things are destroyed in your life, don't you say, praise the Lord? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Whatever he does is good and right, and I'm clinging to him clearly. I did not need that, and I ought not to have had that. Our mediator 
prays for us and designs to take our love for this life out of us. He designs to take the Sodom out of us, the world out of our, our hearts. And he continually prays for this. And so let me remind you again of Jesus' words. Whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, that seems to be a picture of both a righteous and an unrighteous person. What profit did Lot have in the end? Nothing. Jesus says these words. Do you believe him? Do you believe him? Now, some of you could say, well, Pastor Timothy, that's easier said than done. And my response to that is, I never said it was easy. It's impossible. It is impossible to live for Christ's glory without the Spirit's aid and empowerment. But if you lose your life for Christ's sake, and if you have leaned before Jesus, and you continue as a follower of Jesus, laying yourself before him, the only way you can lose your life and praise Jesus is because God has convinced you deep down inside, he is more worthy. He is more glorious than anything else. And so you live in dependence on him. So let me ask you, let me ask you, do you feel like you're experiencing loss right now? Do you feel like you've experienced loss in this past year? Do you feel like maybe you're dying on the inside? Maybe your life is being taken, so to speak. Have you ever thought, have you ever thought that maybe Jesus was praying for that for you? Why would Jesus pray for things that way? Why would Jesus want me to experience that kind of death? Well, because when you live a life of death, so to speak, you shine who is your life. I'm not living just for here. Jesus really is worthy. And it's like the text that I read earlier from Job, though he slay me, I will hope in him. And some people could say, no, 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 Job, it wasn't God who did it. Satan's against you and all these other people and circumstances and the result of the fall because of the hurricanes that came and took your children. Don't blame God. And what Job does is he says, I'm going above all of it. God could have stopped any of it and he didn't. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Whether or not sin is involved, God's over it all. God has purposes in it. Do you believe that? Can you say in your life, though he slay me? Can you say, though my children deny Christ and I did my best as a parent, I will hope in the Lord? Can you say, though I have chronic pain, yet I will hope in the Lord? Can you say, though my friends betray me, 
and close friends. I will hope in the Lord. And many of you know that's been my life in this last year and six years. And I'm telling you, there's no way. There is no way that I could praise Jesus unless God showed me the superior worth of Christ. No way. And I think of the one song where the writer wrote a prayer to the Lord, oh, disarm me of everything I would lean on. So I will lean on you. Jesus, strip me of everything I would depend on. So I'll depend on you. How could we ever say it? How can we ever say these things? It's because our life is not in this world. My life's in Jesus. Take my life here, you haven't taken my life. I have Christ. And so we can even say with the Apostle Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We can say with Paul in Colossians, that our life is hidden with Christ in God. I'm safe. I'm secure. I'm bound up with Jesus in God. I hope you hear these words. I hope you believe. Jesus lost his life for God's glory. Jesus sacrificed everything and lived the perfect life we didn't live and died the death we deserve to die and he lost everything. Betrayals, life, fellowship so that anyone who would trust in him would be restored and reconciled and loved by God and guaranteed eternity with him forever and ever and ever. If you know him, cry out to him, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Cause me to thank you and praise you. You're in control. I'm not in control. Lord, disarm me of everything that I would lean on, so I will lean on you. May that be your prayer. May that be your persistent prayer. Because Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Abba, Father, thank you. Worthy and glorious are you. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to truly trust 
and adore and worship you. Lord, I pray we would take the idolatry of our own hearts seriously. And even as the New Testament says, you don't want to be ashamed at his appearing. We don't want to be like Lot, Father. And thank you for your promises that by your grace we will stand. So may we stand, not in our own strength, not in our own self-protection, not in our own self-control. May we stand in the control and protection and love of God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.